Father, we ask that you uh, in this time would uh, truly renew us, create in us something new, something different than what we've brought to the table. It's what we can't do in our own strength. We need your grace to do it. And we ask that um, by the power of the cross, by what you purchased on Calvary with your son Jesus, sacrifice for us, Lord, uh, by that power, you would work a change in us, Lord. So we leave here not the same from when we came in, even if we weren't expecting it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're a little bit funky today. I got a handheld mic and a music stand and got to just get used to these kind of things. What are you going to do? Um, we're, and we're in a series in Ephesians chapter 6 and talking about a very real enemy, a very real battle that we are all in. If you're a believer, if you're not a believer, uh, you're not battling, you're, you're, you're on the sidelines. But if you're a believer, you're a Christian, uh, you're in a spiritual battle. Um, somebody told me that, that there was a time when little kids would be taught this song. I don't know if any of you re- recognize it. I didn't. Here's how the lyrics go. I don't even know how it goes melodically. Here's the lyrics. One, two, three, the devil's after me. Four, five, six, he's always throwing sticks. Seven, eight, nine, he misses every time. Hallelujah, hallelujah, amen. Ring any bells? No? <laughs> a couple of hands? Uh, one, two, three, the devil's after me. Four, five, six, he's always throwing sticks. Seven, eight, nine, he misses every time. Hallelujah, hallelujah, amen. Well, the first line is right. If you're a believer, uh, the devil hates you. Because you were his, and when you came to Christ, you're not his anymore. You're property that's been redeemed back. You're something that was his. You were enslaved to his, him and his kingdom. And you were, you were pulled out and rescued, and now you belong to Christ. Um, ever since the very beginning, Satan has had a hatred. It's not like it's a game to him. This is, it's, he's, it, he hates you. He's going to do whatever he can to derail you, to, to stifle your walk with the Lord. And the song just tries to make light of it. You know, he's always throwing sticks. He misses every time. But he's throwing more than sticks, and he doesn't miss. But I, I, I don't, even though I never heard of that song, I could believe that we taught our kids that or that kids were taught that because we try to mask it over, right? We try to glaze over it. Like, yeah, there's a devil, but we're Christians, so he can't touch us. And huh, no, one, two, three, throwing sticks. And, and we underestimate the battle that we're in. I think one step we need to take, as we talked about before, is understanding the enemy and then what to do about it. The enemy's a tempter. Uh, ever since the beginning, his, his scheme, his primary tactic, his primary way of derailing believers and people's faith in God is through temptation. Tempting you to think something you shouldn't think. Tempting you to do something you shouldn't do or to stop doing something that you are doing that you should be doing and to just stop that. Uh, he's, he's a tempter. He's a liar. He's an accuser. He tries to put uh, deceit, deceit in your mind and in your heart. And this is how he operates. So I want to do something a little bit different today. In your bulletins, there's a little tiny insert, and it says sermon survey. Okay? And I know we've done, like, sermon feedback surveys before, and I appreciate those. Thank you. But that's not what this is. Um, this is something a little different. I want you to take a moment. We're going to take time out of the sermon for a minute to do this. I want you to think of what you would say 
is Satan's number one temptation. What is, what is the strongest, maybe for you personally, or maybe just in general, what you think is really hurting the church or hurting people in the church, but what is a personal, real life, when you leave here and you go home, uh, what is a Christian to expect? What is the primary, uh, most powerful way? When this thing comes knocking, it's really hard to not answer the door and say, hello, temptation, welcome, come in, and, and yes, we're going to do this. And what, what is it that is really difficult to resist? Um, don't put your name on it, and I'm not a graphologist. I don't know what you call those guys that, you know, they, oh, because he loops like that, I know that that's, you know, Andre. No, um, you know. Just, but write neatly so I can read it. And at, at the end of the sermon today, I'm going to pull them out at random, and we're just going to start applying those. What does that look like? What does that look like in life, and, and what does it mean to resist that temptation? Um, if, you, if you want follow-up, go ahead and put a name on there. It'll be private. I'm the only one that's going to see it. If you want personal follow-up with something, I'll put it on there, and I'm not going to mention the name from the pulpit. But in general, you can keep these anonymous. And we're going to, you know, pass them forward. So I want you to take that time right now. There should be pens and pencils in the pew in front of you. Uh, whether you're, you're a new Christian or veteran Christian, or maybe you haven't given your life to the Lord, but there's a reason why, and there's something that you just really struggle with. Um, I want you to put that down on a piece of paper. Legibly, if I can't read it, I can't use it. Um, but, but maybe just one word, or maybe a sentence. Um, but try not to do, you know, full-length paragraphs and, you know, handing in, you know, bulletins with all your writing on it. Something quick, brief, Al? No inserts? I have a couple extras. Is anybody missing? Um, I thought I had extras up here, and someone absconded with them. Do we have extras in the back? Extra bulletins or extra inserts that we can put forward? While they're securing those, those of you who have uh, those inserts, uh, just, just take a moment to think. Take a moment to, to think, okay, what is really powerful? Uh, a pastor, uh, a friend of mine recently met with a, the youth group. You know, youth are just really honest, man. They'll just tell you, they'll just tell you what's on their mind. And he asked them, what, what would you like to talk about? What would you like? And the number one question they asked was, how do you deal with temptation? Have these kids been in church? Have they, heard, have they read the Bible? Yes, they do. But what does it look like when you're in that classroom and the teacher is telling you this, or when you're in that, you know, um, at that party and the kids are all telling you this? And what does it look like in that moment to resist temptation? So we've we, we got to talk about real life. Don't give me pie-in-the-sky stuff. Give me real stuff. This is a temptation that I think is powerful, either for me or for gen Christians in general. Um, fill those out. And uh, we're going to pass them forward in a minute, and then we'll apply those at the end. Okay. Now what I'm going to do is, uh, Werner and, um, and Jose, there's baskets in the back. Can you just pass those forward, and just or, or just walk them forward maybe, and just let everybody kind of... Just fold your note in half and, and throw it in the bucket, and then we'll, we'll bring those up here to the front, and then we'll get started. 
And later today, when people ask you how church went, you can tell them, you know, pastor's a real weirdo. He passed baskets around and has us fill out notes. Um, that's all right. I know some of you just wrote something down to try to trip me up, right? Just something crazy like I never heard of or some big old word or something. I'll just crumple it and put it to the side. You're not going to get me. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, let's just put those there. Awesome. Wow, that's a lot. Okay, cool. You know, we won't get to all of them, but I'll just pluck them at random. And if you win the prize, this sermon's for you. Uh, Okay. Let's turn our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, as we continue to uh, look at and unpack Paul's charge uh, to believers in this passage. Ephesians chapter 6. And, and I'm going to focus on verse 16, but let's start at the top at, at verse 10, uh, where we began a few weeks ago. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand Firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances. Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. This is Paul's charge. The enemy's after you. He's not throwing sticks. He's coming for real. He's coming with a strategy. He's coming with a scheme. He's smarter than you. He's been doing it for a really long time. Don't you dare think this is some kind of game. This is something you could push to the side. This is something, you know, for more charismatic Christians. No, this is for believers. All ages, all places, all times, all sizes and shapes everyone. It says there's a battle and the way to, the, to fight this battle is to take up this armor, which we talked about last time, is Jesus Christ. You don't have a piece of the armor, but oops, I forgot that other piece. I got to go ask pastor, how do I get this other piece? It's Jesus. If you know Jesus, you have that armor. It's a matter of appropriating it, claiming it, utilizing it. But there, he takes a little break. There's stuff that you wear, right? Like a helmet, a breastplate, stuff on your feet, you know, a belt. But then he, he says, take up the shield of faith. Look at verse 16. There's so much to unpack here, but I just kind of want to camp out on the shield of faith. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil. Now, I love the English Standard Version. You guys know that because we switched to it in the pews. But darts? I don't know about that one, guys. I mean, this is this is arrows, okay? If you, anyone, if you watch like, you know, 
I'm not even recommending these movies, but like the Braveheart or, you know, Gladiator, these kind of movies with like the, or you go back to Spartacus, you know, the, the, you see the Roman armies gathering together and how they would fight. And the first thing they would do is volley darts. No, when I shoot darts, I think of like, you know, you're in the bar and you're just trying to, you know, or you got your boss's picture at work and you're just, you know, whatever. No, not playing darts. These are long, very heavy arrows that would take, uh, you know, a longboat to project. And these darts, these, these arrows, these heavy arrows would be dipped in tar and then lit on fire so that when the arrow hit, it would stick and splatter. The tar would splatter. And so if it would get on you, it would get on your friend, and it would be chaotic. Now, this is the imagery that Paul has because as he's describing this armor, it's like this Roman-style armor. So you're thinking of the Roman battlefield and what it would be like and how they defended themselves against, say, barbarians attacking from the north or something. And they're just lo you know, lobbing these flaming arrows. And they're not designed to miss. They're designed to kill you and others around you. So he says there's these flaming arrows. What do you do about it? What do you do about it? He says, what you need to do is take up the shield of faith. Okay, so let's go home. And hopefully you just do that. Just do it better. What does that mean? <laughs> take up the shield of faith. And I think sometimes, we talked about it before, at church, we just sometimes, we just have these spiritual sayings that have become so familiar and, and, and even memorized and ingested and we know what it says but what does that mean in real life? What does that mean, take up my shield of faith when I have a temptation out there in the real world? To take up my shield of faith, what does that mean? And so the result of not knowing what that means is we depend more heavily on just, I got to read another book on how to do this. And, and I got to, I need a better accountability group. I need to confess it more often. Maybe I should confess it to this person or that person. And those things are, there's, those are tools. But Paul's not saying go get a seven-step program. He's saying take up the shield of faith. What does that mean? Yeah, I was just talking with somebody, and they were telling me about random facts, and I wrote a couple of them down. Listen to these, these random facts, okay? Uh, but they're, supposedly they're true. There's a town in Nebraska where it's illegal to sell donut holes. I don't, I don't, I don't know why. I couldn't imagine what for. I don't even know how they enforce that. Do they just kick down the Dunkin' Donuts and they're like, any munchkins in here? <laughs> Cuff them. You know, I don't know what that means. Idaho. In Idaho, citizens cannot give, a citizen cannot give to another citizen a box of candy if it weighs over 50 pounds. It's like the chocolate police, okay? They would have raided Forrest Gump and interrupted the whole conversation and be like, how many chocolate, don't forget what's in them, how, many, how what do they weigh, you know? Crazy in Idaho. In Kentucky, there's a law. I even looked this one up. I'm like, get out of here. I looked it up, and I, from what I could tell, it's true. In Kentucky, there's a law that mandates that you must bathe once a year. <laughs> how, do you check, how do you check up on the sniff test, the breathalyzer test, and then the, yeah, bro, you know what? I'm bringing you up for not bathing. I don't know. These are, these are supposedly facts, okay? And these are laws. You know, if you're driving through Kentucky, maybe it rings a bell and you remember it. I don't know. But, but these, are, these are laws, but, but we laugh at them because we're like, man, that might be written down somewhere, but that just has no bearing on my life whatsoever. And if we question if it's true, we question, can that be true? The reason why we question is because it sounds so irrelevant. Who cares about donut holes? 
There's people, there's, you know, there's people getting mobbed and killed and there's gangs forming and, and there's graffiti and there's all kinds of stuff I could think of that are more important before I would ever get to a donut hole. Let's outlaw the whole donut before we outlaw donut holes. I mean, this is crazy, but I think this is what seeps into church life. Sermons and Bible studies, they become familiar truths and we may not question that they're true, but when we walk out of these doors, we're like, I don't, I don't get what that has to do with me. I don't get what that has to do with me. What does that have to do with my life? And so the pastor says from the scripture, Ephesians 6, guys, take up your shield of faith. Now go get them. And we don't know what that means. We can't do it. And the church suffers from defeated Christians. I'm mean, on the outside. We still do what we're supposed to do. And we go to church and everything. And, it's, and we're like hanging in there. But deep down inside, we're just defeated believers we don't we don't walk in victory we don't we, we don't believe anymore that the same temptation that keeps knocking us down we don't believe anymore that there's a power to do anything about it i was an excited believer and maybe out for a season in my excitement as a young believer i didn't do it but that was in the human strength of enthusiasm and when the enthusiasm wanes as it does for everyone um, and we're left with just fortitude with just commitment that cracks because we don't know what it means to fight and resist the devil's schemes. What does it mean to take up the shield of faith? The first thing I want to recognize and, and, and point out to you is that he says in verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Now listen, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take up the shield with which you can do something. When you take the shield up, you can use that shield to extinguish the arrows. In other words, you're not going to get by by virtue of just having faith. And just because you have faith, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, I have faith. I believe in God, I believe in Jesus Christ, I believe the Apostles' Creed, whatever it is. I believe our doctrinal statement and everything. I believe Scripture is true. You, you have faith. By virtue of just having faith, you do not extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. You take it up, with which to extinguish. you got to use that thing. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying it's not just stuff that sits on a shelf in the back of your heart somewhere. This is stuff that every day, every moment, you have to make a conscious decision to do something with your faith. You have to take your faith and implement it. You have to take your faith and use it. So this is an action. This is something that's proactive. This is not passive. You don't just sit by and just wait for faith to hit you. You've got to grab it, and you've got to use it. How? Well, first we've got to talk about the arrows. What are they? I mean, we're speaking in metaphors, right? That's why it's hard. Arrows, the darts, what does that mean? You're driving and you get a flat tire. Arrow of the devil! You know, is that, is that an arrow? What is an arrow? I mean, what is the devil trying to accomplish? Then we can talk about what the arrow is. Like we talked about in the beginning, we talked about a couple weeks ago. The devil's scheme, the devil's plan is for you not to stand in your faith, for you not to stand as a firm Christian, but to you to fall, falter, disobey, walk away, stop being a Christian, stop, stop doing Christian things, stop, just stop this whole worship thing, just stop it. Cool off, cool down, take a nap, take a break, go backwards, backslide, walk away. You know, he wants you to not worship God. He wants you to not be a faithful Christian. 
How does the devil do it? You can close your mind and just take a quick walk through the Bible. And beginning in Genesis, God created Adam and Eve. Satan says, I don't like that. I hate Adam and Eve. I rebelled against God, and now he's creating something that's lesser than me and is going to be greater than me by virtue of their relationship with God. I hate them. And so he comes into the garden. The first thing he does, he comes up to Eve. But Adam's right there, so. What's he say? Now, did God really say... And, and oh, did I mean? Well, he said this, and then she kind of misquotes God. Oh, I, I mean, I guess look, God just said that because this and that. Doubt God's goodness. God only did that because He doesn't want you to be like Him. God just wants to keep you down. God just wants you to live a boring, dull life. He wants you to look at that fruit and look at that tree and smell it and see it glistening in the morning dew and say, "Ha ha, you can't have it." That's what God is trying to do in your life. That's the flaming arrow. God is not good. God does not want what's best for you. God does not, you know, have your good interests in mind. He's trying to suppress you, whatever the lie is, some kind of lie to get you to doubt that his command to not bite that fruit is a good command that you should follow. Think of Job. And God says, have you seen Job? And Satan says, yeah, I've seen him. But you know why he worships you? Because you give him everything. All right, take everything away, but don't touch him. Takes everything away. Those are flaming arrows. Why? What is he trying to get Job to do? Curse God. God is not good. I was, here I am all this time worshiping a God. And, and you know what? It turns out that God is just a big punk. And so I curse you. That's what he's trying to get Job to do. Instead, Job doesn't go, <laughs> you took my family. You, you, know, you, you took everything away from me. But uh, you're only throwing sticks. You miss every time. Job chapter 30, Job says, you miss every time. No, we made that up. Job said, I don't get this. I don't understand this. This is hard. This is painful. I don't know why this is happening, but God is good. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives, he takes away in all things. He should be blessed. God is awesome. God is worthy of praise. And Satan is going, what? He's shooting these flaming arrows. I mean, he took his family, took his, you know. Trying to get Job to doubt God. Trying to get Job to waver in his faith. Anything that would get Job to do that, that's a flaming arrow. You think of Jesus in the wilderness. And he's walking, he's hungry, he's been fasting, he's, it's a 40-day fast, and he's tired, and he's weak, and he's seeing maybe mirages, I mean, he's human. And Satan comes along and first tries to like a silly wine, oh, turn these stones into bread, and no, no. And then he says, well, I know what you're doing, Jesus, right? You, you want to be king, you want to be glorified, but it's going to end up in death. You know that. I'm filling in here. But you read between the lines what Satan is getting at. What does he say? He says, Jesus, why don't you jump from this precipice? And the Psalms promise that the angels will catch you. And as people see you, you know, either floating or maybe they visibly see the angels catch you, they can see you are the, you are, you're it. And then they'll worship you. What's the flaming dart? The flaming dart is don't go to the cross. That's not the way to glory. Fame. People going, oh, look at that power. That's glory. Power is glory. Showing everybody who you are. That's glory. Take it now. Don't go to the cross. Take it now. Right now. Here's the precipice. There's the people. They're going to see it. Then after that, he tries another one. Hey, but you know what? You know I have power, right? All these kingdoms and all, these, all this reign and rule that I have, bow down to me and, and you, you could reign. You could reign. Bow down to me. You can reign. What's the lie? Don't go to the cross for glory. 
bow down to me for glory. It's easy. No pain, no punches, no tearing out your beard, no crown of thorns or whatever these people are going to do because I'm going to lay it on thick, Jesus. I'm going to lay it on thick. It's, it's going to be painful. And you're going to die a really gruesome death. You don't want that. Bow down right now and it's over. What's the flaming arrow? To get Jesus to doubt that God's plan of making him go to the cross is the best thing. So anything the enemy throws at you to get you to doubt that God is good, to get you to doubt that what God has said is true, to get you to doubt that God's promises are false, to get you to doubt that what the Bible says is true, anything to get you to say, you know what, I used to believe this, but I don't believe this anymore. And you might intentionally think that, or it might just be a subconscious, you know what, I don't, I don't really believe that. I believe it on paper, but I don't really believe it in my heart. Those are the flaming arrows. Those are the flaming darts, as this is translated. And so he says, take up the shield of faith. Now, the Roman shield, it wasn't one of those little pansy, like, you know, like gladiator round little shields. And uh, this thing, the, the Greek word for it is based on the word for door. So, like, if you take a door off its hinges and strap a leather strap to it and walk around, that's what he's talking about. This is, this is, now they wouldn't engage in close combat with this, but these are the shields they would use as they're marching, and they know they're going to volley arrows, and they know they're going to stick them in pitch and light them on fire, and those things are going to hit, and when they stick, they splatter, and we start running all crazy. We need something effective. And so what they did was they, they constructed these door-sized shields, four feet by two and a half feet, historians tell us, made of wood but not exposed wood right because they're they have to extinguish arrows so they would stretch canvas and leather over the wood and at the top and in the bottom they'd be reinforced with metal they were very heavy very solid shields that if the average sized person would crouch a little bit it would cover your whole person they would even put their shields together so that they would protect each other uh, from those arrows this is an effective shield this works and he's saying if you take up the shield it will extinguish the arrow, that arrow will not get through. That arrow will not penetrate. That arrow will not wound you. It'll come, it'll blaze in the night sky, it'll be scary as it's whistling down towards you, but it will not hurt you. You will stand if you take up the shield. What is the shield? What's the opposite of doubt? It's faith. That even though the arrow is asking you to doubt something, faith is saying, you know what, I believe this instead. The arrow is calling into question something that God said. The shield of faith is taking it up, is saying, I believe what God said. I know it to be true. And even though it, the circumstances around me make it look like this is not true. I don't know. The Bible says this, but look at my life. God of comfort, very present help in trouble. Look at my life. And so then the flaming darts come. God is not good. God is not looking after you. He's, look at your life. Look what's happening. Look at your financial situation. Look at the lost loved one. Look at whatever it is to rock your faith. Taking up the shield of faith is saying, no, I believe this to be true. I believe God is good. And the cross proves that. So to take up the shield of faith, guys, it means believing what the temptation is asking you to doubt. Is that... Is that does that make sense? The temptation is asking you to doubt something. At the end of the day, it's not about the candy that you're, that you're, that you're looking at. It's not about that. You're, that's a, there's a lie there. Now, mom and dad said candy's not good for my teeth, but in the moment, you don't believe that. You don't believe that, and you just want the candy because the lie is it just tastes good. It tastes good. It's not going to kill you. It's not going to bother you. It's not going to maim you. It's not going to do anything. It just tastes good, and that's how it starts. There's a lie you believed. 
to take what you shouldn't take. In 1 Peter 5, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to read this to you, and it's familiar to most of you. 1 Peter 5, uh, listen to what Peter says. It's incredible. He says, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, lion seeking someone to devour. Right? Resist him, firm in your faith. Okay, so you have this lion. He's looking. He's looking. Who can I pounce on? Who can I take out? Who's he looking for? The ones that don't resist. Well, how do we resist? By being firm in your faith. It's by believing. I think far too often we want to leave these doors with a one, two, three. You know, something we could jot down in the back of the bulletin, stick it on our fridge and go, step one, do this, step two, do that, and then step three, you do that, and there go the flaming arrows are, are extinguished. But this isn't a one, two, three action plan. This is belief. What do you really believe? If there's a temptation that's continually knocking you down, there's something you're not believing that the temptation is deceiving you over. That's at the root of it. Now attack the root, then go to your focus groups, go to your accountability partners, go, you know, pluck some stuff off the books, and I could, you know, me and the elders could feed you some stuff to read, and all that stuff becomes good tools. But if you don't attack the root of faith versus doubt, those tools won't help. The way to resist temptation is to believe that truth that God is asking you to believe, no matter what the circumstances, everything around you saying the opposite, you believe it anyway. All right, so we have here uh, two baskets full of notes. Um, let's just consolidate them and, um, you know, shuffle them around or something. And uh, I don't know. I, I didn't read this in a book. I'm freestyling this. And here's where it gets dangerous. Uh, should we cut the recording? This is freestyle now. I don't, I don't have any notes, okay? So let, we're going to pluck a couple of these. I'm kidding. You could keep that going. I can always delete it later. Okay, uh, the first one that we have there is pride. I'm going to take a look at the next one in case it's a tricky one and I've got to start, you know, get the wheels turning ahead of time uh, to, to talk about that. Oh, the second one is pride. Let's see how this goes. Mm, okay, that's a good one too. All right. Okay, I thought somebody had something. On. Okay, ready? Pride, or somebody else said, worshiping self. Okay. What's the lie there? What's the lie? You are God. You are worthy. You are worth. Worthship, that's worship, right? And then come to church and we go, only God, you, only you are worthy. And then we leave these doors and we live lives like only we're worthy. That's where the selfishness comes in. And the lie is, don't worship God. Don't put God first. Put yourself first. That's the age-old lie. God just doesn't want you to take that fruit because you're going to be like him. You know? And then fill Adam and Eve with pride and go, yeah, I'll bite this fruit and I'll be like God. Yeah, that was Satan's fall. Isaiah tells us the seven I wills. I will ascend to the throne of the Most High. I will take over. I will rise up and I will be like the Most High God. And God says, no, you won't. <laughs> uh, and then that's what infects us the most, I think. Uh, pride, worshiping self. So in the things that we do, where we're not putting someone else first, we're always clinging to rights. You know, I have the right to come home to cook dinner or whatever. You know, and we cling to these things and then the marital argument starts, right? Have you been home changing diapers? Have you been home? You know, and, then, and the argument starts. Okay, how am I going to put my spouse first? I have rights. I should eat. 
I pay for it. We wouldn't have a house if I didn't work. And see, it's me, it's me, it's me. Never does the husband, you know, maybe not never, but I mean, you rarely hear the story of the husband that comes home and, you know what, I've been working hard all day, but forget about me. What is it like here? The stinky diapers, how many a day? Do you bathe them or do you just wipe them? I mean, what is it like all day? And then maybe she says, you know what, why don't we switch for a day? You know, see, you're putting the other person first by just, you know what, I can make an argument and make a case. But let me put that aside and put the other person first because it's not me that's okay. So that's pride. And believing that, you have to come to a point where you truly believe you are not first. You are not number one. You've got to come to that point. I was at Panera meeting with somebody one day, and we were just talking, and this person, we were talking about the gospel, and I just said, you know what, we're just, we've got to get to that point where we're sinners. We realize we're sinners. We need God. And he said, well, I take a little bit more positive view of us than, than that. And I said, don't. All the stuff that you think is good and you present it to God, it stinks of filthy rags. Isaiah tells us that. We have nothing good to offer God, guys. All we have is a damaged, bent, perverted version of what he instilled in us. It becomes good when it's redeemed in the cross. Another one that was presented was materialism. Materialism is the greatest thing Christians in America face. I think materialism is an extension of pride because it's comfort. You know, as you gather stuff, you're building an estate for yourself. Here's one of the lies. One of the lies... And you're going to go, nobody believes that. Think about it. One of the lies that we believe when it comes to materialism and these kind of things is that I live forever. Right? I mean, it's like, it's like, a, like a blind. This is why, you know, at memorial service funerals, we say, hey, guys, look. Look, we all approach this place. What is all that stuff? All those houses and yachts or homie, whatever you were trying to accumulate, what does all that matter now? It doesn't. And we go, yeah, you're right. And then we leave and we go have lunch and we go, okay, now what am I going to do? Check my stock market. And, and we just go back into the world where it's just like a blindedness where we realize, you know, we, we try to build up and sell that house and get the bigger one and sell that house and get the bigger one. And, and the materialism creeps in and the lie is like we're immortal or something. There's a book out there called Your Best Life Now. And I get, you know, John MacArthur was, you know, kind of destroying the book as he, as he does. And I'm kind of like, oh, take it easy, John, you know. Um, he said, that book is a lie because the only way your life is best now is if you're going to hell. Wow. Don't shoot for your best life now. That's a lie. The best life is to come. When Jesus redeems all that is fallen, all that is broken, sickness, disease is erased and that only comes if you know Christ. Let's do let's look at a couple more. Wow, somebody's ink exploded on this one. Woo. Um Wow, that's okay. I don't know if I can read that. All right, let's see. Um, I can't read that one either. Sorry. You know who's good at that? My mom. She's a pharmacist. And she gets these prescriptions from the doctor, and it's like, <laughs> and she's like, oh, yeah, Nexaprin. I don't know. I don't know how she does it. Um, forgiveness. Forgiveness. All right. That's, a t that's tough, right? 
Here's a point I came to with forgiveness. I hope it doesn't take the rest of our time, but I'll try to move through it. The reason at the end of the day we cling to unforgiveness is because we feel like we deserve forgiveness. The lie is a works-based system. I'll explain. You come to God and you say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've done some messed up things. And there's nothing I could do to put the toothpaste back in the tube, so uh, forgive me. And someone comes into your life and does something you would never do. It's abominable. You, you, know, you gossiped a little, but, but you know, this, this, is, this is unforgivable. This is something you, I cannot. I cannot. The Bible calls us to forgive. What does he say? Forgive as God in Christ forgave you. And if you think that when God forgave you, it was like, eh, you get a pass. It wasn't that big of a deal. That's how you're going to walk around in life. I'll forgive you like the way God forgave me, if it's not that big of a deal. But if you do something for real, if you do something, you know, like treacherous or really bad or traumatic, then I'm not going to forgive you. No, no, no. As God forgave you, if you come to the point where you realize that all you offer is dirty rags, you did the worst thing. You, you did the worst. You breached your relationship with God. You are a sinner. Then you won't be like that servant who's forgiven this huge debt and then he goes out in the street and the guy owes a little debt and he starts choking him. You owe me. You remember that story? The parable of Jesus? The king forgives him this huge impossible debt and then the next thing he does when he's forgiven, he goes out in the street, starts choking a guy that owes him a few bucks. Go back to this scene and recognize the huge debt that you've been forgiven. And then when you go out in relationships, you realize there's, there's nothing anyone can do to you where you have the right to withhold forgiveness. Because God didn't withhold it from you. You've got to come back to the cross. Um, the other thing about forgiveness that I want to share is, and I think I've shared this a few years ago, but um, I was in a class once at Trinity, and the professor was a counselor, and his expertise was um, sexual abuse victims. These are, the, these are the people who would counsel them through uh, recovering from that experience and dealing with the hurt and the pain. And he said uh, there was one particular uh, woman who, um, no matter how many verses he fed her or how many, you know, uh, Hallmark card saying type of things, he would say, go home and say this five times or whatever, you know, it just wasn't clicking. Nothing was helping. None of these, none of these verses were helping her. And she came excited into the office one day. Uh, uh, Mr. So-and-so, you know, Dr. So-and-so, I finally found a passage that, that brings comfort. Oh, really? What is that? And she went to the book of Revelation, right, where Jesus comes and the sword is out of his mouth and he's just, just cutting down every wicked person, every evil deed, every crooked politician. I mean, he's cutting them down. The streets are flowing with blood. The, ho the horses are like swimming in it. You remember this scene? John is describing the, the complete wrath of Christ unleashed on the world. She goes, that brings me comfort. He goes, why? That's so morbid. <laughs> because God doesn't just let things go. He's watching. Now, if you think you hate what that person did, it doesn't hold a candle to God's hatred of sin. Sin is first and foremost against God. He hates sin. It's abominable to him. It hurts him. Okay. 
if a person doesn't come to know Christ, they will experience the wrath that we were saved from. Now, if we put that perspective, those two things together. One, I have no right to withhold forgiveness from anyone because when I do, I'm believing the lie that I'm, I'm, I'm up here and they're down there when it comes to the cross. That's a lie. That's false. We're all in the same boat. Put that together with the fact, the truth, that if this person doesn't come to the Lord, say it's not a Christian, and hopefully if you know they're not repentant and they're not saying I'm sorry and that kind of thing, maybe, you know, if they're not a Christian, you recognize like, wow, they're going to experience wrath. So you take your estranged father that you haven't spoken to in decades and start thinking, you know what, wait a minute. What he did to me, was it as bad as what I've done to God? No. I have no right to withhold conversations and not talk and, and, and withhold forgiveness. But when he dies, where is he going to be? And you imagine the wrath of God unfolding and just away from God and just, you know, in enemy territory. And they do whatever they want and the, the torture and the weeping, gnashing of teeth. And you go, man, he needs rescue. So let me put my little petty little things that I'm offended about and put it over here and just talk, to the, to talk about the gospel. And use that as the avenue for forgiveness. I forgive you, Dad. I forgive you, Pop. I forgive you, Father, because God forgave me. And I want you to understand that he's willing to forgive you. And that's the truth. The lie is that he doesn't. You deserve it, and he doesn't. Let's do one more. Hmm. Here we go. All righty. Acting out in frustration and anger. Say you're running late, speeding over the limit, or something like that. Something you know, people are whining, complaining to you, and then you act out in frustration. Maybe those are two separate things. Um, acting out in frustration and anger. I read a book once, and I thought it was a powerful saying where he said, I can't remember where it was. He said, When we act out in anger, anger arises because of blocked goals. You were trying to get somewhere. You were trying to do something, and that person did something that blocks that goal, and you become frustrated, you become angry. You come home, you expect something, you get mad at your wife. Your wife, you come home, your wife expects to hear something from you. You don't say it. Her expectation, her expectation is blocked. She becomes angry. And I think it goes back to pride. I really do. And I, I don't want to use pride as the, the sort of secret, you know, bomb for everything. But, I mean, uh, this, is a, this is a moment where what's happening inside of you comes out. It explodes out. And so instead of trying to deal with this, you know, like the same book that I read, when that happens, go take a 10-minute walk. Okay, that might help, but it's going to happen again if you don't go inside. Why do I explode? Why do I burst out in frustration? It's because I go about my schedule and I'm trying to do what I'm trying to do. And if anything blocks and gets in the way, my stress and anxiety pours out in frustration. I think there's two ways to do that. You can blow out or you can implode. Right? If you blow out and you become, well, get out of my way. I'm trying to get to work. You cut me off. Hey, you want to fight? You want to fight? You're at Speedway, and then you're like, you've got the relaunch bracelet. You know. or, or you implode, and you get depressed. You don't want to talk to anybody. You kind of just, ugh, it's, ugh, ugh. You just start disappearing into this darkness of depression. I think a lot of it stems from the same issue. Uh, you... You have a schedule. You have things you want to accomplish in life. You and things block that, and you become frustrated. And I think there's a lot of different lies that could be the flaming arrows in that. But it has to start with, hey, I'm not number one. 
you know, this thing doesn't get done today and it can get done another time. Or maybe there's something else to be done. Um, but instead of putting my schedule and my wants and my things at the top, and as a pastor, I experience this. I'm not immune to this. Everything, even with the relaunch. You know, if it fails, I fail. If it doesn't happen, it doesn't, you know, what about me? Well, am I not doing it right? You know, it just becomes the Lucas show. And it's every day to say, no, it's not about Lucas, man. It's not about you. It's not about the elders. And it's not about, it's about what God is trying to do. And us trying to get on page with that. Um, and so it's, it's easy for me to uh, try to think, okay, did we order that thing and call Bob and is the Facebook thing up? And then, and then Pastor, are you coming to our wedding? Oh, my goodness, it's in Michigan. And then I come back and I got to come back for something else. And, and then my kid is like, Dad, can you look at something I drew? Stop it. I didn't actually do that. I'm making that up. I never do that. Why? I'm supposed to be doing all these holy things and be all this righteousness, right? And then, and then, like, and then not have time for the kid, you know, that I'm supposed to be shepherding and is supposed to be my number one responsibility. It's because all these things creepily and oddly, weirdly become about me somehow. And I've got to get it done because I've got to succeed. And if something interrupts that, becomes difficult. All right, this isn't supposed to be a self-exposure session, but I just want you guys to see that, you know, it's not uh, something that I have completely. When I leave these doors, just like you today, I've got to face things just like you do. Jesus faced things just like we do. Uh, he never gave in. So his shield of faith was always up. Um, he always knew how to respond in faith. No, that's not true. The cross is more glorious. No, that's not true. That's, that's a shortcut, but that's not the right way. And that's how we have to respond. We take up the shield of faith. I'm going to close with this. Uh, last year, uh, we had the kids, and we were in Galena. And we walked into, like, one of these, uh, you know, these little shops that wouldn't make it anywhere else unless you're in a quaint town like Galena. <laughs> and they sell stuff. You're like, anywhere else, you know, I wouldn't buy this. But okay, you know. <laughs> you come home with big banners for your lawn and stuff. It's crazy. We walked in there, and the first thing I see is, a bunch of things that are breakable, right? And I just looked at my kids, and I'm like, oh, man, you know, Lincoln wasn't, you know, but Elias and Raquel are walking around, and I'm just like, oh, boy, you know. Uh, and, and Elias would grab this thing, look at this thing, you know, and it's like a paper mache airplane, you know, or something, and I'm like, oh, put that back. Don't touch that. Don't touch that. Oh, my goodness. And I'm just, like, following them around like this. I said, you know what, Elias? Put your hands in your pocket." And he goes like this, and his shorts didn't have pockets. And he's like, looking at me like, what do I do now? Like, he really wanted to obey, but there's no pockets. And I'm like, put your thumbs through your loops. And so he goes like this. And he walks to the store like that. And he's looking at stuff. And I saw him a couple times, like, touch a doll like that. And then he keeps walking, you know. And I'm kind of keeping an eye on the corner. And then the, the, the lady that owns the store, she comes out. And she goes, hey, kids, how are you? And they come up to him, and they're like, hey, how are you doing? And she goes, hey, how do you? Okay, shakes Raquel's hand and goes to shake his hand. And he goes. Uh, and she's like, what are you doing? Daddy said to put my fingers in my loops. Why? Because he doesn't want me to break anything or touch anything. She goes, well, I'm the owner of the store. All these things are mine. And I tell you, you can touch anything you want. 
And I was standing kitty quarter to her. And I looked at him to see what he would do. And then uh, she just he looks at me with this look on his face like, you have the final word. Right? I go, you know what, buddy? If, if that's what she's telling you, you can do it. But <laughs> don't break anything. <laughs> I knew that if I would have said, you know what? You need to keep your fingers in your loops. And then when she looks at me like, oh, what kind of evil parent? Then I'll take her for a walk. I'm like, what you say? <laughs> but I said, okay. Now, I use that as an example why. Uh, not to say my kids are, you know, they walk around with halos on because, you know, it's not always true. That's why we have the loop trick and the hand pocket thing um, because none of us are perfect. Um, and I'm certainly not a perfect parent. But in that moment, he was approached with a proposition to disobey what I said. And it made sense. Hey, I own all this stuff. You can touch anything you want. And I give you permission to do it. Do it. And he had a choice. Even though that makes sense, even though that computes, dad said something different. And so the tension was, all this makes sense to me, and I really, really want to, and the only other thing I have over here is just dad said no. He didn't say why, he didn't say, he said no. Taking up the shield of faith is saying, even though everything around me questions it, everything, everything around me, all my circumstances call into question what I previously believed, I know it to be true because God said so, and I cling to it, and I hold to it. That's taking up the shield of faith. Now let's pray together. Father, we, we have a difficult time understanding what it means to walk by faith, to be filled with the Spirit, to obey you, to walk in obedience and trust. But Lord, as we leave here and we think about the things that we're faced with, the things that call us to question your goodness, the things that challenge our belief in your trustworthiness, give us the grace to see deeper examine more carefully in our hearts what is really going on here what am i calling into doubt what is this thing asking me to stop believing and that we could take up that shield of faith and believe it pull out the sword of the spirit which is the word of god and speak truth against that thing that's calling doubt calling us to doubt we ask that we would um, um, before we go to the helps and the tools that are available to us uh, when we have things that are bad habits or vices, that the first and foremost thing that we do, the foundational uh, thing that we cling to is faith and belief that you are a God who loved us enough and demonstrated uh, his love in sending his son Jesus to die for us when we were still undeserving sinners. What an amazing story. What an amazing gospel message. And we pray that as we cling to that, we will see power and victory in our everyday lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.